Well, we just celebrated Christmas, and uh, next week we'll be celebrating New Year's, and before you know it, we'll be celebrating Valentine's Day, and uh, Good Friday, and Easter, and then Mother's Day, and Father's Day, and the 4th of July, and Labor Day, and Halloween, and then Thanksgiving, and before you know it, we'll be back to Christmas all over again. And uh, that's just the way it is as Americans, right? I mean, our annual calendars revolve around these major holidays. Uh, Well, it's even more so for the Jews. Uh, They have Passover, uh, Feast of Weeks or Feast of Pentecost. They have the Feast of Trumpets. That's their New Year celebration. They have, of course, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, They have the Feast of Booze, and then they have Hanukkah. And uh, all of these Jewish holidays, with the exception of Hanukkah, are mentioned in the Bible and are mandated by God in the Old Testament. And were given by God on Mount Sinai. Again, with the exception of Hanukkah, which was instituted by the Jews in the second century BC to commemorate the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem during the Maccabean Revolt. And I don't know if you're aware of this, however, there is one holiday, one Jewish holiday, that's mentioned in the Bible that wasn't mandated by God which really makes it the most unique of all the annual celebrations on the Jewish calendar. Anybody know what I'm referring to? The Feast of Purim. And it was instituted by the Jewish exiles in Persia as an annual celebration of their deliverance from Haman's devious and malicious plot to exterminate them. Pur. P-U-R is the Hebrew word for lot, or dice, if you will, which is what Haman cast to determine the day of the Holocaust of the Jews. Uh, Purim is plural for pur. In the English, when we um, make a noun plural, we, we do it by adding an S or an E-S, but in the Hebrew, uh, you pluralize a noun by adding an I-M. So like you have cherubs, angels, right, or seraph. Seraph, uh, seraphs, uh, if you want to pluralize that, you have cherubim, or beam, cherubim, or seraphim, and so you have purim, which is uh, plural for uh, this, this Hebrew word for a lot. And uh, every March, Jews around the world gather together to commemorate the events that took place in the book of Esther. Basically what Purim is, the Feast of Purim, it's a providence party. It's celebrating God's providence in preserving the nation of Israel. And this is a a fun and it's a colorful holiday for the Jewish people. And it begins with a time of fasting uh, to remember the mourning and the fasting of the Jewish exiles when Haman decreed their annihilation. And they go to the synagogue and then they hear the story of Esther read and acted out. And whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they boo and they hiss and and the children rattle noisemakers. He's the villain. And then they go home and they eat and drink and they have a a big parade through the streets and they dress up like the characters of the story and they hand out care packages to to the poor and the needy. And so it's really a a, a day of rejoicing for the Jewish people. I read somewhere that a, a Soviet Jew was once asked by a Westerner what would happen or what would be the outcome if the, if the uh, USSR stepped up its anti-Semitic policies? 
And this Jew simply replied, probably a feast. And uh, when he was asked to explain that, he said, well, think about it. Pharaoh tried to wipe out the Jews, and the result was Passover. Haman tried to exterminate the Jews, and the result was Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to do a sin, and the result was Hanukkah. And then that truly is the amazing testimony of the Jewish people throughout history. Um, that there have been uh, many attempts to destroy the nation of Israel, and they've all failed. And so the book of Esther is, is really a microcosm of the history of Israel. And if you were to put a title on, on the book of Esther, it would be Preservation Through Providence, that God preserved his people through his providence. And uh, if, if uh, a basic outline of the book, you can, the, the book, and, and by the way, you know that Esther's on my mind and heart because uh, I just spent a week teaching it in, in uh, Singapore, and so I just, uh, I'm still kind of basking in, in, in just the amazing story that this is, and there's so much truth here for us that I've been meditating on. It's just been so good for my soul. I wanted to share some more of it with you this morning. But you could divide the book of Esther. There's 10 chapters. You could divide it really in half. Uh, chapters 1 through 5, you could call the threat to the Jews, and then chapters 6 through 10 would be the triumph of the Jews. And so what we have here, uh, uh, particularly uh, in, in the book of, of Esther, is, is, is really just God, God chronicling for us his providential preservation of the Jews who remained in Persia after King Cyrus had conquered the Babylonian Empire and, and released them, told them they could go back to their homeland after being there for 70 years in captivity, and, and however, the majority of them chose to stay in Persia. In, in many ways, they were being disobedient. They were, they were compromised. And, and yet, even though God's name is never mentioned anywhere in the book, which is very unique to any book of the Bible, right? You assume this book is all about God, and it talks about God all over the place. Every other page, there's something about God. Well, guess, guess what? For 10 whole chapters, there's nothing about God. It's really uncanny, this, this book, and, and, and I think there's a very strategic purpose for the way it was written under the inspiration of the Spirit that while his name is never mentioned, his sovereign hand can be clearly seen working behind the scenes to rescue the Jews from this vicious plot to annihilate them, just using an ordinary Jewish girl named Esther and her wise cousin Mordecai. And through all the twists and turns of this, of this uh, dramatic and ironic tale, God's wise and loving care for his people is put on display, not through a series of what, what the world would say are, oh, what a coincidence. No, these are, are marvelous and mysterious workings of God's providence. And so one of, the, one of the blessings of this book is it really sharpens our spiritual focus and, and helps us to more quickly and easily recognize God's invisible hand at work in our lives. And it helped more than that, not just seeing it, but, but learning to rest in it. And rejoice in God's providence, especially when we find ourselves in, in what appear to be desperate, hopeless situations where we're like, hey, where is God in all this? And Esther reminds us when, when it seems like God is least present, he is most at work. And, and one of the main lessons, I think, of this entire story is 
that God is never early or ever late, but he's always right on time. So really, this, this story, is, it's all about timing, uh, God's timing. And, and if you know the theme verse, um, this gives us some insight into this, Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, if you remember when Haman's plot was made known and Mordecai went to uh, um, mourning in sackcloth and he appealed to Esther and said, uh, you, need to, you need to go to bat for the Jews. You need to tell your husband, the king, that what Haman is plotting and maybe God will use you to deliver us. And, and, and she says, uh, excuse me, Mordecai, uh, there's a protocol here. And if I go to talk to the king uninvited, I could lose my head. I could lose my life. And he appeals back to her in Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. It's only a matter of time, Esther. You're going to get your head chopped off anyway if you don't do anything. Verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royally for such a... what? time as this. So this entire story is all about God's timing. And God's timing is what? Perfect. It's perfect. And I think God's perfect timing is most clearly seen in the events that unfold in the sixth chapter. And I wanted, I wanted to invite you there to turn to the sixth chapter with me. And, and this is really the transitional chapter, as I mentioned. The first five chapters, uh, the threat is revealed, and it's unfolded, and it's like, oh man, this is bad news. This is not looking good for the Jews. And then everything begins to turn now in chapter 6 um, in the Jews' favor. And when all hope was lost, or apparently lost, right, all of a sudden there's a, there's a ray of hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and we're going to see that here in, in, in chapter 6. The, the, the threat turning to triumph. Now, let me just read it, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 1 of chapter 6. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, hmm, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. 
So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zareth, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zareth, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Father, as we drop down smack dab in the middle of this story, I know there's a lot of questions in our minds about some of the details that we've just read, but I pray that your spirit would uh, pull this all together in our minds as we uh, consider this one specific chapter and and how it uh, fits into the bigger picture of this book and uh, even more importantly, how it applies to our lives today. Lord, I pray that we would learn to trust in you and submit to your perfect timing in our lives, Lord. We all uh, confess that it's hard to wait on you. Uh, we're all impatient by nature. And I pray that this story would uh, be an encouragement to our hearts, Lord, to, to patiently wait upon you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you who are my age or above probably will remember the old Maranatha praise song, In His Time. You remember that song? It goes like this. In His time, in His time, He makes all things beautiful in His time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time. Anybody familiar with that song? Yeah, we all kind of sang it uh, years ago. And whenever we as God's people talk about his work in our lives, you'll oftentimes hear us say, or you hear it say, well, God's timing is what? Perfect. And this is typically the response when God graciously answers our prayers in a timely manner, or it's the encouragement that we give to someone who's waiting on God to work or to move in a particular situation. We say, hey, listen, God's timing is perfect. And the reason why this is so encouraging to be reminded of is because waiting on God to work and move is one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life, isn't it? Particularly when we find ourselves in a difficult, maybe even a desperate situation, whether it's physically or maritally or maybe with our family or financially, uh, and we wonder what God is doing or if he's doing anything at all. It's especially hard to wait on God when he seems silent or when he seems absent. And I think that's why the book of Esther is so relevant. It's so practical to our lives as Christians because, again, the moral of the story is that when God appears least present, he is most active. And just like he did in this Old Testament drama, God chooses to work more often than not between the lines or behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. One commentator said it this way, God is active even where initially he cannot be seen, active in what appears to be nothing more than the mundane processes of normal life. With our modern emphasis upon the spectacular, that is a point that is well worth pondering. God can work through the miraculous, but more often it is through something simpler. We need, perhaps, to develop the skill of reflecting more on the seemingly ordinary events of life to appreciate how God has been at work in our daily experience. 
This is often in ways that we only notice at a later point when we recognize how a series of apparently unconnected events actually come together to serve the purposes of God. When I originally taught this book through on a Wednesday night, uh, several years ago, the title I chose was Seeing the Providence of God in Everything. In everything, not just in the miraculous. We're, we're always looking for the miraculous. Well, what about the mundane, where we typically all live, right? The everyday life with ordinary people, ordinary circumstances. And we're going to see here in chapter 6 how God providentially worked through a series of normal ordinary, everyday circumstances to overrule the evil plans of Haman to exterminate God's people. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said this about God's providence, nothing so high that is above his providence, nothing so low that is beneath it, nothing so large but it is bounded by it, nothing so confused but God can order it, nothing so bad but he can draw good out of it, nothing so wisely plotted but God can disappoint it. That's God's providence. Well, again, just to give you the context here, because we just kind of parachuted down here in the middle of the book, but in chapter 5... Esther had boldly approached the king, uninvited, to appeal this edict that, uh, that Haman had uh, got the king to sign, which sanctioned the Holocaust of the Jews. And by the grace of God, he extended the golden scepter and asked her what she wanted. She said, hey, hey, basically, hey, honey, what do you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And rather than blurting out her request in public, which would have put him in a difficult situation, and if you know anything about the book of Esther, the first time uh, the queen put uh, him in a difficult situation, she was deposed, right? Queen Vashti would, would not refuse to come and, and, and report to him in front of all of his buddies, and so he made an example out of her. And so Esther was wise enough to say, you know, I'm not going to put the king, I'm not going to put my husband on the spot in front of all of his buddies here. I'm going to invite him to a private banquet, and I'm going to invite Haman along with him. And at that banquet uh, in chapter 5, she sensed that it would be wiser to wait to make her request, so she asked the king and Haman to come back for another banquet on the following day where she would reveal what was on her heart. However, unbeknownst to Esther, that very night, Haman constructed a 75-foot gallows, as it's called. It was probably more likely that it was a skewer, a giant shish kebab is what it was. 75 feet high, and his intent was to kill Mordecai, who was Esther's father figure and mentor and advisor uh, before this second banquet. Uh, Just look back at chapter 5, verse 9. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he did not stand up for tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. This was an ongoing thing, by the way. This wasn't the first time that Mordecai had not uh, stood up and bowed down before uh, Haman. Uh, Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Jareth. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above all the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she has prepared and tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. So here he is just boasting and bragging um, about all of his accomplishments. 
Yet, he said in verse 13, all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This guy has the audacity not to bow to me when I come through the gate. And by the way, that was why he was wanting to kill all the Jews in the first place, because this one Jew wouldn't bow to him. And so he was irritated, even though he had all these blessings, all these accomplishments. Verse 14, then Jairus' wife and all his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, then go joyfully with the king to the banquet, and the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. By the way, Jareth, his wife, goes down in history alongside Job's wife, I think. <laughs> Curse God and die is what Job's wife counseled him. Now Jareth said, hey, if you don't like the guy, build a gallows and have him skewered on it. Nice women. Don't, don't name your daughter Jareth, okay, whatever you do. That wouldn't be a good thing. So chapter 5 ends here with the sound of hammers and, and, and chisels ringing in our ears as the gallows for Mordecai are being built. And things look tentative for God's people. It still looks really bad. Things are not going their way. Things don't seem to be changing. But here in chapter 6, the tables begin to turn, and we're able to see that it's only a matter of time before the Jews are vindicated before their enemies. And I think it's most helpful uh, to, to see the events in chapter 6 in the context of waiting on God. Waiting on God, because Esther was waiting on God's timing to make her request to her husband. He's already asked her two times, hey, wh- what's on your heart, honey? How can, I, how can I help you? What do you need? He's already asked her twice, and, and, and he's, he just, she just felt it wasn't the right time, and so she's waiting on the Lord for the right time to, to, to reveal uh, Haman as, the, as the, the snake that he was. And, and so a couple things had to happen. Well, first of all, Haman had to build his own gallows. Had no real, he didn't, had no idea. He was building his own means of, of, of death. And also Mordecai had to be honored. And so we see that here in chapter 6. So all, all that to say, if you've ever questioned God's timing in your life, which I know we all have, haven't we? If you've ever questioned God's timing in your life, you won't after studying this chapter. Because what we see here are four examples of God's perfect timing that, that, that I think are intended to encourage us to, to patiently wait upon the Lord. What, what are these examples of God's perfect timing? Well, you, we see the timing of Ahasuerus' insomnia. You see the timing of Haman's visit. You see the timing of Mordecai's reward. And you see the timing of Esther's banquet. Let's look at these four examples of God's perfect timing. First of all, the, the timing of Hajjwaris is insomnia. Verse 1, during that night, what night? The night where Haman was up building this gallows for Mordecai. During that night, the king could not sleep, and so he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thena and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And so while Haman was busy building the gallows, Ahasuerus was tossing and turning. 
in bed. And there's no reason given why the king couldn't sleep. Maybe he had a bad dream. Maybe he was troubled by something. Maybe he ate a pepperoni pizza with some Mountain Dew at midnight and it wasn't settling well. Uh, We don't know, but we're left to conclude that this was a divine case of insomnia. This was God's providence at work. And, And it's interesting, he could have chosen any number of entertainments Being the king of the known world, the ruler of the known world, he could have any kind of food brought to him, any kind of drink. Not to mention he had this enormous harem, which was the whole first end of the book. I mean, the guy was a party animal and had all these women uh, that could satisfy him at any time he wanted. But instead of reverting to all the entertainments that he had at his fingertips, he asked one of his servants to read him the records of his reign. I mean, this guy was desperate to go to sleep. He says, hey, go find, bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and and read them to me. I mean, talk about a yawner. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, getting the the accounting sheets from last year, you know, your your tax files or something, you know, and and having your wife read them to you or something. Uh, Persian kings were were known for maintaining elaborate recording systems. I mean, they they had encyclopedic libraries. It's like, hey, go find that book. And so you have to go into this actual room where they had all these scrolls and they had to go find just the one that the king wanted. And so in the providence of God, of all the records of Ahasuerus' 12-year reign up to that point, The portion that was read to him that night contained the account of the assassination attempt on his life, which had been foiled by none other than Mordecai five years earlier. Just turn back to chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, which was basically showing that he was a leader in the city, and that's where all the decisions were made. That was a marketplace. It was the courthouse. And so he was a decision maker, and Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's officials from, uh, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. When it says that they guarded the door, they were the guys that stood on either side of the king's door at nighttime. Those are the guys that you didn't want to get sideways with, okay? Because they're the ones that gave anyone access to you while you were sleeping. Uh, you wanted to make sure those two guys were the most loyal, trusted guys Around And yet these two guys were angry with the king and sought to uh, be a part of some assassination plot. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. And so these two men were found out, they were killed, And it was written down, recorded in the book of the Chronicles, in the king's presence. But nothing was ever done to honor Mordecai. In fact, the very next chapter, it's interesting, chapter 3, after these these events, King Ahasuerus promoted, you would think the next word would be who? Mordecai. He's the guy that just saved his life from this conspiracy. And so after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman? Who's Haman? Well, he was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, yes, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. The plot thickens here. Again, this is all part of God's providence. Talk about feeling slighted or potentially feeling slighted. I mean, Mordecai deserved to be honored at that point, but he wasn't. He, he's the one that should have been promoted, but he got overlooked for some other guy. Has that ever happened to you? 
you were the one that deserved to be promoted and you got overlooked and somebody else got the position that you had really deserved and had earned? Well, again, God's timing is what? Perfect. And that wasn't God's time to exalt Mordecai. It was later. And, and this is the time here in chapter 6. Now, again, the king couldn't remember what, if anything, had been done to properly reward Mordecai for saving his life. And, and um, Herodotus, a Greek historian, indicated that it was, it was uh, a point of honor with Persian kings to, to promptly and generously reward those who, who had benefited them. Uh, it was good for public relations, made the king look good, not to mention it was good for safety, it was good for your livelihood, right? Uh, I mean, who is, who's going to save you the next time if they don't get rewarded, right? If, hey, you saved my life, I'm going to reward you handsomely. Well, somebody else would be real quick to jump in, right, to save his life the next time uh, if he knew that there was a certainty of a reward. And so when he discovered here that nothing had been done to honor Mordecai's loyal act, he wanted to correct that. He wanted to make that right. And so the first example of perfect timing is the timing of Ahasuerus' insomnia. Now look at God's perfect timing in Haman's visit. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, okay? Let's talk about perfect timing. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered. Haman had just entered. Like, oh, oh, by the way, coincidentally, no, providentially, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging who? Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court, and the king said, Let him come in. So Haman had come early in the morning, just like his wife had counseled him to do to get the king's permission to hang Mordecai. And he arrived at the very same time Ahasuerus was thinking here about how to honor Mordecai. And so notice what goes on next, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And this guy was totally into himself. And, and, and in, in the king's mind, this is his most trusted advisor. And so he says, hey, what do you think should be done for the man who, who, who I would want to honor? And so Haman, being the egomaniac that he was, assumed the king wanted to honor him. And so he thought of what he would like to have done for him. How would he want to be honored? Then Haman said to the king, verse 7, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let him Let them bring a royal robe which the king has sworn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's noble princes and let them array the man for whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Basically what Haman was saying is, hey, let the guy be king for a day. And that's what King wanted, or Haman wanted, I think, more than anything else. I mean, he was wealthy uh, beyond people's wildest imagination. We, we learned that earlier in the book. Um, but what he craved more than anything else was respect, was recognition. And so he suggested this elaborate parade to be given in the man's honor where he would be treated like he was the king. 
And I think that's what Haman wanted most. He wanted to be king, he, not just for a day, but for a lifetime. He, this guy had his eyes on the throne. I mean, he was next in line for the throne if the king died, right? It's like the VP in, in, in the United States, right? The, somebody assassinates the president. Well, guess what? The vice president becomes the new, the new president. And so, he, again, the timing is just perfect in his arrival and his suggestion even. Well, we see God's perfect timing continue here in Mordecai's reward. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Oh man, that just must have made every anti-Semitic bone in his body just, and the hair on the back of his neck, I can't, who is sitting at the king's gate, do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So the king hears Haman out, and he goes, hey, that, that's a great idea. Now I want you to go every, to do everything that you suggested for Mordecai, the Jew. Now I don't think Ahasuerus was rubbing that in, just the fact that he said, Mordecai the Jew. Um, Mordecai had told Esther to keep her... Um, upbringing a secret. Uh, don't, don't tell the king your heritage. Don't tell him you're a Jew. But it, it had come out in, um, in, in Esther chapter 3 when Haman required everyone to bow in his presence. And then whenever he walked to the gate, Mordecai would just sit there. He wouldn't even get up. And uh, people would say, hey, why, why aren't you uh, bowing down to Haman? I mean, he's the big G's here, man. Head honcho, right? You got to bow down. He goes, I'm not bowing down to that guy. And they go, well, why? He goes, well, because I'm a Jew. You're like, so? Well, hold that thought, okay? The plot thickens even more in a second. But when, when Mordecai found that out, or excuse me, when Haman found that out, that he wasn't bowing because he was a Jew, oh, he's a Jew, well, that just, uh, just got all over him, and, and uh, he had an old score to settle, being an Agagite, and, uh, and so that's why this all unfolded the way it did. I mean, I would love to have been a fly on the wall to just to see the expression on Haman's face when he says, hey, love the idea, great, now just go do it to Mordecai. I would just love to see Haman's expression, what, what, what he would have said. And by the way, when it says Mordecai the Jew, this is the first of five times that Mordecai was called the Jew. Chapter 8, verse 7 so King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, chapter 9, verse 29, then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this sec- second letter about Purim. Uh, over and over again, he says, Mordecai, the Jew, Mordecai, the Jew, Mordecai, the Jew. Well, again, talk about eating humble pie here. The whole reason why Haman had gone to the king in the first place was to get him to pass an edict to destroy the Jews because Mordecai refused to bow down and honor him. And now the king ordered Haman to lead Mordecai through the city and command people to bow down and honor him. I mean, Haman must have been seething with anger the entire time he paraded Mordecai through the city and had to proclaim his worst enemy as the man whom the king delighted to honor. Can you just imagine this as as he's doing this uh, in in chapter 6? 
So Haman, verse 11, took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be to the man, done to the man whom the king desired to honor. <laughs> He's like this choking on, on these words as they're coming out. I mean, how embarrassing, how humiliating, how ironic. And I think this is one of the greatest ironies of Scripture, that he who exalts himself will be what? Humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's exactly what we see. We see Mordecai being a very humble man, right, who, who God ends up exalting. And we see Haman being a very prideful man who, who God had to crush. Again, the timing of all this is, is so providential, not just because Haman had to honor Mordecai on the very day he was planning to have him skewered, but because the king would honor a Jew who he had condemned to die through his edict. The last time we saw Mordecai, he was dressed in sackcloth and mourning at the king's gate in chapter 4. And so this was totally unexpected and far beyond anything he could have asked for or even imagined to be honored in this way. We're talking about a roller coaster ride of emotion. One day he's just he's wailing and weeping throughout the city, and the next day he's riding on a horse, being honored and exalted. And yet Mordecai didn't let it go to his head. He didn't call his family together and, and gloat of his good fortune like Haman had. I mean, talk about a difference a day makes. I mean, just a day before, Haman had rushed home to boast about the best day of his life. Best day ever! I just got invited to a private date with the king and queen. Now he's rushed, he rushes home in shame and mourning to tell his family and friends about the worst day of his life. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home. Morning with his head covered. By the way, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. That's the point. He's like, he just went back to doing what he always did. He, he didn't go and tell him, hey, did you see me? Did you hear what they said? He just went back to his job. Did, didn't, didn't make more of it than it was. Didn't let it go to his head. Just, just went back to do, doing, doing his business. But Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Talk about a role reversal here, right? Now Haman's the one with the sackcloth and... Haman recounted to Jareth, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Jareth, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you're toast. Is basically what she said. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They saw this as a bad omen. And they warned him that, listen, if Mordecai is a Jew, dude, you're going down. You're doomed. And apparently, Haman's wife and his counselors knew enough of the history of the ongoing family feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites that, that Haman didn't stand a chance against Mordecai. He was bound to lose. Why? Because the Amalekites always lost against the Jews. And again, you have to go back to Exodus 17, 1 Samuel chapter 
15, where the Amalekites had attacked the Israelites in the wilderness right after they left, the, the, left Egypt, and they were escaping Egypt, and the Amalekites would, would attack them, and, uh, which brought them under the curse of God. And God basically said, that's it. We're going to wipe you guys off the face of the planet. And Saul was the one that was given that order in 1 Samuel 15. He said, hey, go fight the Amalekites and destroy every living thing. Not just the people, destroy their sheep, their goats, their dogs, you name it, kill them all. And uh, Saul disobeyed. He spared some of the animals and said, oh, it was to offer sacrifices, right? Uh, But more importantly, he spared who? King Agag. And so when Samuel came and Saul rushed to him and said, oh, I've done everything that God told me to do. And Samuel said, hey, so what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? And he goes, oh, the guy thought it was a good idea to get, save some of the sheep and we'll offer him a sacrifice. And Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice, right? And because you've disobeyed, you're no longer going to be king. And I've replaced you. God's replaced you. And he's got another guy. His name's David, right? And what did, how'd that story end? First Samuel 15, it ends with Samuel hacking Agag to pieces, And so there was some serious bad blood <laughs> between the Agagites and the Israelites. And Haman had an old score to settle, if you will. And, um, but the problem is, if you're of Jewish origin, you can't lose. You always win. And, and, and in light of uh, Abraham's Uh, God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, God's promise to David that uh, there will be someone on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever and no one will be able to defeat him. In fact, it's interesting here in the book of Esther, what you see happen towards the end here in chapter 8 and chapter 9 is people start converting to Judaism. These Persians start becoming Jews because they're seeing, whoa, God's on your side. It was even God's providence was, was evidence to the pagans. Someone wrote it, said it this way, God's work of providence is so clear that even the pagans cannot miss its significance. Even Haman's friends are not so dense as to write off this day's events as mere coincidence. They know all that this must be attributed to the intervention of Israel's God and that once he becomes involved in the world, the final outcome is never in doubt. And so you see these people, it says in chapter 8, verse 17, and many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. In other words, if you can't beat them, what? Join them is what was going on. And again, I think seen in the light of God's covenants to Abraham and, and to David, the, the original readers here uh, were to appreciate the providential work of God to preserve his people from extinction. I mean, this book was originally written to Jews in post-exilic times to assure them that after all they'd been through, all the judgments they had faced, all the destruction that they had experienced, that God was still going to keep his promises to preserve them. Even when they disobeyed, even when they compromised, 
even when they were not where they needed to be spiritually, God would deliver them. Why? Because he promised that he would. And so you see the timing of God here in the, in the honoring of, of Mordecai. And then finally, you, you see the timing of Esther's banquet. You see the timing, God's perfect timing in, in Esther's banquet. Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, I mean, the, the words had just come off his wife's lips that, hey, you're a goner, dude. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And so with this solemn warning ringing in his ear, if Mordecai is of Jewish origin, you will surely fall. The king's eunuchs arrive and escort him to this banquet, the second banquet where his evil plot to annihilate the Jewish race was going to be exposed and he would be hanged on the same gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. I mean, earlier he had planned to go happily to this feast. He was going to kill Mordecai, and then he was going to go off skipping to the banquet, and it was just going to be a wonderful day with the king and queen. All his problems would have been solved, but now everything had changed. And we don't have time to read this, but if you just um, quickly skim read chapter 7, uh, basically what happens is the queen says, king, ha- king asked her one more time, third time, hey, honey, w- what's up? Why, why all the banquets here, you know? And she says, well, because there's someone who's trying to kill me and, our, and all my people. And he's like, well, who is it? And he's like, it's your guy. It's your right-hand man, Haman. And uh, he was livid, jumped up, walked outside. Haman had been around the king long enough to know he was in big trouble. When the king got mad, somebody's head was going to roll, and he knew it was his. And so he was begging Esther at her feet, please have mercy on me. Tell the king to spare me. And, and, and again, providential timing. He walks in. The king returns to the room right when he's doing that. And it looks like to the king that he's assaulting his wife. And so that was it. And as soon as he said, you'll, you'll actually go and assault my wife in my presence. And it says they covered up his head and they took him away. In other words, he was going to the gallows. Again, this, this whole book, but this chapter in particular, is so practical. So practical. Why? Because all of us hate to wait on the Lord. Anybody like doing that? Like, yeah, I just, I just love to wait on the Lord. It's just the, my favorite thing when God says wait. Listen, we're all impatient by nature. Don't mean to embarrass my daughter this morning, but I told this story in Singapore, and they all thought it was funny, so... I said, I said, listen, I, my little girl, Hannah, when she was like three years old or so, I think provided an example of, for all of us in that um, Zach and I were out in the driveway and we were shooting baskets and his little basketball hoop and, and we were having fun and Hannah had her bike out and I still remember she had her little ponytails sticking out of the side of her head and she's so cute as a little three-year-old and, and, and she said, Daddy... I want to go on a bike ride. Come with me. Take me on a bike ride. I said, honey, you need to wait. I'm playing basketball with, with Zach. And so a few minutes later, she came over again. Daddy, I want to go to a bike ride right now. I said, honey, you have to wait. I'm, I got to finish playing basketball with Zach. And finally, she came up and she said, daddy, I want to go on a bike ride right now. And I said, and I got, at that point, I got frustrated. I said, Hannah, you have got to learn to be patient. And she looked right back up to me. She goes, daddy, I don't want to be patient. 
I, I heard my own heart saying that. I never, those words never came out of my mouth. But I had thought those things and I had felt those things in my relationship with God. I may have not said it, but I might as well have. I don't want to be patient. I want what I want now. And I, I think that's why we, we can all relate to the frequent cry of the psalmist who, who would regularly say, how long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to wait? How long before you act? How long before you answer my prayer? How long before you respond? How long before I sense you again or feel you again or, or, or see you at work again? How long, O oh Lord? But we also learn from the psalmist that waiting on the Lord is an act of worship. It's an act of obedience. And I think this is one of the main themes of the Psalms is is waiting on the Lord. Let let me just give you two examples here. Turn over to the Psalms quickly and just look at Psalm 27. This psalm is titled, A A Psalm of Fearless Trust in God. Just listen to the language that David uses here. This is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. And then look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And here it is, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And then Psalm 37, that's Psalm 27, this is Psalm 37, easy to remember, these two Psalms. Notice uh, Psalm 37, verse verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to wrongdoing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And then look at verse 32. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. I mean, we're seeing this is, this is the story of Esther. This is Haman, right? This is a, a perfect illustration of the book of Haman, or the book of Haman, the book of Esther. Um, again, verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in his native soil. This is Haman. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and behold the upright for the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be together destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. 
The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. I think these Psalms and the story of Esther are in the Bible for the purpose of encouraging us to patiently and obediently trust in and submit to God's perfect timing in our lives. Have you noticed God is never in a hurry? He's never early. He's never late. He's always right on time. And you may remember from our recent study of the Gospel of John, probably the best illustration in the whole Bible about God's perfect timing, and that is when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. In John 11, verse 3, it says, Mary, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus, and so when he heard that he was sick, he immediately rushed to his side to save him, to heal him. Is that what it says? No, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said, okay, let's go to Judea. That doesn't seem very loving. If he truly loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he would have come immediately. He would have rushed off to be with them in an instant. And when he finally did go, Mary and Martha questioned his love for them. Jesus, if you knew that he was, why why didn't you come? Well, it goes back to what he said. This sickness is not to to end in death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. You may be in a situation right now where you're having to wait on the Lord. And you're wondering, why hasn't he come to rescue you yet? And it may be that you're even questioning his love for you. But this is a good reminder to not fret, to not fear, to not question his love when he chooses to providentially delay something in your life, which is all part of his sovereign purposes to teach you, to grow you, to fill you up where you're lacking in your faith. God's perfect timing requires our obedient waiting. We love to revel in God's perfect timing. God's timing is perfect. But in order to learn that lesson, to, to experience that it's true, it requires us to wait obediently and wait patiently. I'll give you a homework assignment. If you haven't already downloaded this song on your iPod or however you listen to music, find the song by John Waller called While I'm Waiting. While I'm Waiting, made popular through the Fireproof movie, Kirk Cameron. 
love that song. And basically what it says is, you know what? I'm going to worship you. I'm going to serve you while I'm waiting. And we all have something in our life that we're waiting on, something for God to do. Um, And so what do you do? You worship the Lord. You serve the Lord. You obey the Lord. You go about your business, and you trust the Lord that his timing is perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this story. Um, The book of Esther, it seems like strange that a a story so old and antiquated could be so timely for us today. We thank you for giving us your word and thank you for the way it speaks to us and addresses uh, the very issues in our lives and our hearts that we're dealing with right here and now. I pray you'd help us, Lord, as we don't like to wait. We want to know things. We want, uh, we want to know things yesterday. We want things to happen yesterday. We don't like to have to wait on you for the future. And, but Lord, we know that your timing is perfect. And so as we wait, I pray we'd be faithful to uh, serve you and to worship you and to trust you. And uh, Lord, as we do that, that you would teach us more and more um, that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises and uh, you are uh, more than worthy to be trusted with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.